My name is Elliot. Joining me today, as always, my world's favorite co-host, Rovik. How are you doing, buddy? What's up? What's up? I feel like I don't give you as much of the platitude every time I'm opening the introduction. It's okay, lah. I'm not the kind of person expecting. I'm very happy to just be your co-host, dude. Even though I would place you on a pedestal. Don't worry, no pressure. No pressure. It's not competition, dude. <laughs> You're right there with me. You're right there with me. Well, today we have like a really fun and exciting episode. And of course, we do have a guest joining us. So... Would like to give a warm SG explained welcome to Dr. Jaipal. Dr. Jaipal, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Jaipal is actually the executive director at the SPCA, or also known as the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, you know, we're very excited to have your expertise. Very, very rarely we get a executive director come speak directly to us on our podcast. It's my pleasure, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, discussion. What drew you to this line of work? It's funny because. I read this SD article of you during the research of this show uh, which quoted you saying do not call you an animal lover even though you know in your position I would assume you love animals by every definition out there I am an animal lover I think I, I say don't call me that or I don't like to be referred to as an animal lover uh, I'm doing that obviously to generate discussion and there's two main reasons uh, why I, I, I do that I, I think it creates an us versus them mentality or uh, us and them meaning like like animal lovers versus non-animal lovers. I think it insinuates that I only advocate for animals because I'm an animal lover. But my take is that anyone can advocate uh, for animals. Anyone can care for an animal's welfare. You don't need to be quote-unquote an animal uh, lover. Because I get it so often when someone hears what I'm doing and they ask me where you work and I tell them where I work almost always immediately oh you must be an animal lover well you know what does that mean so does it mean if you are not an animal lover you don't uh, need to care for the welfare of animals or do anything to support the movement uh, yeah you absolutely can so that's the first thing and then of course the second one is the definition of course is not very clear what exactly is uh, an animal lover someone who for example breeds and sells pedigree uh, puppies uh, someone who trains dogs uh, and uses electric shock collars on them for example they may consider themselves animal lovers because maybe they like being around animals what are they actually doing for animals Right, like I, I think the term just is so loose and it doesn't really make sense, and it covers such a broad spectrum of people who just have interest being around animals, but actually some of their activities may end up harming animals. We're not an animal fancier society. I don't do that sort of work. Uh, we advocate for animals, um, you know, and I prefer to be in the category of uh, an animal welfare advocate or an animal rights advocate. Oh, I think that makes so much sense. It actually, opened my eyes immediately to this whole thought of, you know, you don't have to love animals to, to treat them with decency or to even, like, advocate for the rights of a species, say, in Singapore, right? Like, cruelty is all around and whatever we can do to minimize that animals are otherwise it's still a noble thing to, to champion exactly and how long have you been in the field involved in animal welfare even before I started working so I think it's coming now I, I lost count it's around 20 years being involved in some form in uh, animal welfare in some form I started I think around NS days national service wow okay okay my first activity was uh, to volunteer with the back then it was called the Vegetarian Society of Singapore they have evolved over the years as, a, as an organization but I started doing advocacy for farm animal welfare it's a cause that's very dear to my heart are there a lot of farm animals in Singapore not as much as in many other countries with you know right. farmland Singapore doesn't have that Singapore does have some farm animals for sure obviously we don't have a huge 
farming culture here. When I think of animal welfare, I, I don't think of just geography or locality, right? Like a lot of animal welfare advocates actually, we care for animals, generally speaking. So when we advocate for farm animal welfare, we would think about animals in factory farms in countries overseas as well, including uh, on top of animals in, in Singapore. Uh, of course, a lot of the food that we consume in Singapore, the animal products come from overseas. So we do have to think about those sources. In NUS, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I formed the Animal Welfare Student Group in NUS because there wasn't one back then. I got together with a bunch of quote-unquote animal lovers. No, I mean, got together with a, a group of animal advocates and we, we set up the uh, NUS Students Animal Welfare uh, society back then started hearing, you know, learning about law policy, the bigger issues, uh, and then started realizing that this is something I was very passionate about. I felt a lot needed to be done. So the moment I graduated, I was very lucky. Sometimes you just need a bit of uh, passion, but also a bit of luck and timing. SPC was hiring an inspector to investigate animal cruelty and welfare cases. And I thought that would be a good start to my journey. I went for the interview and thankfully got selected. You talked about how you were advocating and looking at farm animals and it was beyond Singapore. Immediately when you said that, I was like, that's a very Singaporean way uh, of looking at the world, right? You can't look at just this little red dot. You have to look beyond our borders. And I think it's an important point that animal welfare and just animal activism in, in general, we consider Singapore, but it has to extend beyond it. So very yeah. cool. I think you're definitely a man who's very passionate about this topic and we're very excited to talk to you. As someone who is an advocate for adopt and not shop, right? when it comes to pets. I, I thought today, and it's great that Dr. Jaipal is here, I thought it would be a great opportunity to shed some light on the activities of the SPCA in Singapore. The SPCA is Singapore's first registered animal welfare organization and it promotes civil society uh, with the help of volunteer members by preventing cruelty to animals and speaking up for better treatment of animals and acting as an animal rights advocate. I learned quite a number of interesting things. Number one, it is a registered animal welfare charity and actually not a government agency. So what that means is it does not receive any grants but depends on donations and fundraising activities to maintain its operations. That, that to me, once I realized, like, whoa, it did not click until this very moment. You thought the SPCA was a government organization? Okay, you know I know The S in SPCA, right? Sometimes people are mistaken as like the word Singapore is inside somewhere, right? And I always assume that as well, one of these household names that um, somehow the government would be involved with it. But turns out I was wrong. Being a charity must put you in a very unique position because you have to really talk to donors. You really have to go out there and create awareness about why uh, you need funds, right? So I'm curious, what are some of the mainstay things that the SPCA does to, you know, raise funds, create awareness? So actually, uh, Elliot, interestingly, uh, your misconception is, is, a, is a fairly common one. There are a lot of people who think that we are either a government agency or a pseudo-government agency. I think there was someone who wrote to us some feedback recently, something about our services and saying that if you, you know, or, you know, I need you to reply by this day. If you don't, I'm going to report you to your ministry. So I don't know which ministry they will report us to, but we are an independent uh, organization. So it's a very common misconception. And I think it's also partially because we have been around for so long and we, uh, we have been so dom dominant in the animal welfare landscape in Singapore, intricately linked to animal welfare work here that people think that we have to be uh, yeah, a government agency or funded uh, by them. We are, we are not. We have been thankful though. We have had obviously some government support in terms of land where we didn't have to pay you know, market rate uh, leases. So obviously we are providing a very important public service. But yeah, in terms of running our services, uh, hiring people to do the work, uh, feeding the animals, uh, 
veterinary care, which is obviously can be very costly. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. All our education outreach efforts, everything, buying vehicles. Uh, no, we don't, we don't get support. So yeah, we need to raise money. At the moment, we need about three million dollars a year to run uh, the whole range of services that we do. So we have a twenty-four hour emergency animal rescue service for domestic animals, and then uh, you know, a fantastic other charity called Acres. They run one for wild animals and birds. Uh, so we have, of course, then also a shelter. We run uh, adoption and fostering programs for the animals that we take in. We have an inspectorate where we investigate animal cruelty and welfare cases. We run a community animal clinic, which is actually the only one of its kind in Singapore, a not-for-profit uh, veterinary clinic that serves needy animals in Singapore. That's really amazing. The, the, that's a real range of, actually, across the board. It's not just about like taking care of the animals. but And yeah, and I'm, I'm done with the list. <laughs> we do population management programs where we, we manage the street dog and cat uh, populations. So that list that I just mentioned is, is our key on-the-ground animal welfare services. So it's about providing care, rescue, support, for, for animals that are in need of immediate uh, uh, attention. But of course, we want to think ahead as well. We want to think bigger picture. We want to change things uh, significantly for the long term. So that's where our education outreach and advocacy work comes in uh, as well, where we do uh, proactive uh, raising of awareness of various issues uh, through talks, workshops, with social media, of course, outreach. We do campaigns. We're having an event coming up soon, Animal Welfare Symposium. Well, wow, Dr. Jennifer, this, this really blows my mind. Like, there's so many things to help me wrap my head around this. How many volunteers do you guys have? I mean, on a yearly basis. Is that a number you could share? So we've got a very strong uh, supporter base who, who supports our work and they do so by, by giving, uh, which is very important, by donating. But absolutely, we do have very, very dedicated uh, volunteers, some of whom come in very regularly. Some have come in regularly during the COVID period. Uh, it's been incredible. Uh, for us. Some are working full-time jobs. They come in on the weekend or in between in the week when they have time. And it's just incredible to see that dedication. In terms of numbers, it varies. Depends how you classify, you know, more active versus less active ones. We have some that come, you know, come in maybe once in six months. Maybe they help you at an event, which is still very important, of course. Some come in regularly to walk the dogs, feed the cats, clean the cages. Some volunteers actually don't come in, but they, they foster animals that require more intensive care and they do so at home. And that's a, also a very important form of volunteering. So this entire pool, uh, you know, it will vary. Like I think in, in terms of active volunteers, it can be anywhere from uh, 100 to 200 at any one time. Uh, but our total base is, is much larger than that. I remember as a kid, some of the viewers would know this, but I was from Maristella High and the old SPCA was right next to us in Mount Vernon. I would see, you know, people go after school just to like, you said like literally go walk the dogs or at least like go and say hi to them and take care of them. That was, it's interesting to know how, how big we've become actually. My favorite part of this story is how organic and ground-driven all of this is. It traces back from the very foundation. So we were to trace back the history of the SPCA. The idea of a society for animal welfare in Singapore was first proposed by uh, Mr. D.F.A. Hervey. And this was in March 1876. In a letter to the editor of the Daily Times, Hervey asked those in favor of the idea to submit their names so as to arrange a meeting to discuss the preliminary steps for the formation of the society. So already you can see very grounds up, very much an organic movement. A public meeting was subsequently held on 27 March that same year, during which the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was established. Hervey was appointed as the Society's first honorary secretary. Now, the first 23 cases of animal abuse prosecuted by the Society were reported in the Straits Times newspaper as having taken place in May 1878. Out of the first 23 reported cases, one case involved cruelty to a bullock, while the rest were cases of cruelty to hack ponies. The fines 
range from $1 to $5, amounting to a total sum of $39.75. Four months later, on 5th October 1884, other cases were brought under the notice of the society, and amongst those reported in the Straits Times were three for cruelty to omnibus horses, 17 for ill treatment of oxen, and four for causing suffering to birds by shooting them with sumpitans, a kind of blowgun for discharging arrows. There are two things that are interesting here for me. The first is that they're kind of animals that were under the purview of the SPCA, very much telling of the times, because these are, I imagine, like close to farm animals, actually. The second thing that was interesting for me was the fact that they could find people. Can you find people now? <laughs> yeah, that's actually interesting because when we first started, and I mean, prevention of cruelty to animals is in our name, right? So obviously that's like one of the most significant things. And there was a fair bit uh, back in the day. Unfortunately, there still is now. And we started off, yes, bringing people to court, doing prosecutions. The the money that was collected, the fines actually came back to the society to continue running so that they could continue that, that work. It was pretty incredible. I think it was around 1901 that someone in the government said, why is SPCA taking the fines? Uh, this money should come to the government. When they did that, so my understanding of that history, this is of course a very long time ago. So my understanding was when they did that and they, they stopped letting SPCA take the, the money from the fines, uh, SPC didn't have the resources to continue running. The government started taking over animal prosecutions. That, that's great that you mentioned it because based on the research that I found, right, it was very, it's very hard to find research online. I was that I, I couldn't find any records of like the societies, the old society activities, right, back then. Um, according to the NLB, there are these like scattered reports where the society is always expressing like concern for animal welfare. Of course, these could be linked to the SPCA or individuals who expouse aims similar to what we have in modern day SPCA. Uh, like for example, in 1947, uh, there's this English woman, her name is Lucia Bach. Uh, she founded the Singapore branch of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or back then known as the RSPCA. Bach, who ran a boarding house at Tomlinson Road, tried to garner public interest and revive the Animal Rights Society. Uh, and on the grounds of a large colonial bungalow, uh, Bach started a few makeshift canals to provide shelter for stray animals. And in 1954, the RSPCA actually set up its office along Orchard Road, which is insane to me. Uh, Leslie Higgins, an organizer from the London headquarters of the RSPCA, arrived in Singapore to organize the local branch activities and train its staff. I think the RSPCA was actually getting some grants because it states here that the society also lost its $5,000 financial grant that came from the colonial government back in the day. However, the Singapore government allowed the SPCA to remain at its Orchard Road premises for a uh, quote, $1 token rent per year from the Orchard Road premises. It occupied on a temporary license from the government. $1 is a very nice deal, <laughs> I guess. And in 1984, the SPCA vacated the Orchard Road premises for its ex accommodation uh, at Mount Vernon Road, where full-time veterinary services for the animals uh, under its care began in July 1988. So just before we were born, Rovic, <laughs> I don't know the SPCA has, had, by this time had widened its scope of animal welfare services to include 24-hour emergency service for sick, injured, and very young animals. Uh, they had, at this point in time, a sterilization voucher program for strays and a clinic for basic treatment of stray animals. We do things like, you know, lost and found service for pets. We, we do have that. We do advocate or assist, you know, pet guardians or community <clears throat> animal caregivers who, you know, run into trouble for various reasons. You know, someone, for example, is asked to remove the pet from their home or a caregiver is being harassed by someone uh, in, in, in power, uh, we do then try to uh, offer support and assistance for these people. So we also have not, of course, not just help animals, but we help the people 
uh, who are caring for for animals. As the executive director, you probably also need to carry the brand and values and heritage of the SPCA. I'm curious, you know, based on the story that we've just dug up about the history of the SPCA, what's your favorite part about like the evolution and history of the organization? Well, so a lot of that uh, uh, resonates with me personally. I think I think the prevention of animal cruelty that was key. So that's why I joined the SPCA. When I joined as inspector, that was my first uh, position uh, at the SPCA. Uh, it was to investigate animal cruelty and welfare uh, cases. And like I said, that's the reason the SPCA was founded. Nobody wants to see an animal harmed, right? Um, and, and that's something that moves me uh, a lot when I see that to want to do something uh, about the situation and to, to protect uh, the animal. So, so for that reason, I'm very uh, interested in uh, policy and law issues as well, you know, trying to find protections for animals in much larger uh, scales because you can rescue one uh, animal that's been abused, um, but you also want to think about how you can prevent animal abuse or how you can think about uh, big industries, you know, like uh, mills or the farm animal industry uh, and other uh, animal industries where, you know, so changes to, to, to regulations or policies and laws uh, can really have a huge impact on a uh, uh, very large number of animals and, and provide them protection from, from harm. And that's something that uh, keeps me going in, in, in the work that I do. Thank you so much, Dr. Jaipal, for sharing as much as you have so far. Uh, now we're going to just take a short break and we'll be right back. We'll talk a little bit more about animal welfare in Singapore and also about adoption versus purchasing of pets. So stay tuned for that. We're glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Ali and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explained effort in one of two ways. If you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right, all the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For $5 US a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack you can get a digest a week with great content. The internet has allowed you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explain, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. All right, and we're back from the break. So in the first half of this episode, we centered in on what the SPCA does, what the organization kind of works around, the kind of main activities that it focuses on. So now we're going to be looking at some of the larger issues around which the SPCA really does advocacy work, does a lot of policy recommendations. And actually, this is a very, very interesting space because I think we'll see that there's been a lot of evolution in how we've treated animals as a result of the 
good work that the SPCA has done. So we'll be going through a number of cases and we'll use these cases as an opportunity to understand better uh, how we've journeyed on this path for animal welfare. The first one is in December 1996, the SPCA appealed for a harsher sentence for a man who had savagely beaten a 12-year-old mongrel with a metal rod, resulting in serious injuries from which it eventually succumbed to. Although the man was fined only $500, the society appealed for a stiffer sentence. I mean, imagine you just beat this 12-year-old dog to death and eat that. that's all you get, $500. The man was subsequently jailed for one month in a landmark ruling, a decision the SPCA welcomed as a deterrent measure. And in September 1997, the SPCA also appealed for a stiffer sentence against four Thai construction workers who were each jailed two months for burning a dog alive because they wanted to eat it. The dog was eventually put to sleep due to the severity of its injuries. I just reading this, I kind of feel sick a bit because, you know, we've seen these dogs out there. I think if you've done national service or you've gone to some of these rural areas, I think the notion has always been if you don't want to engage with them, just let them be, right? Let sleeping dogs lie, kind of. But why go and like kill or beat a dog to death? And so the fact that the SPCA came in to do something, that is pretty, pretty important. Like you said, as you read these uh, cases, you know, it's it's extremely disturbing what was done uh, to the animal. There's two fronts, you know, when an when, uh, animal protection organization like ours looks at such issues. Number one is, of course, you want to prevent them from happening in the first place, which you can't always do because you cannot be everywhere at all times and, you know, crime is going to happen. Unfortunately, animal cruelty is going to happen. Although we want to try to bring that down to as low a number as possible. But what is as important, sometimes if not more important, will be the action you take after the cruelty has been enacted. What we want to see in such cases is deterrent sentences so that the next person thinks very carefully before they want to go out uh, and beat an animal to death. Uh, or do some other form of horrific uh, cruelty and a five hundred dollar fine. And this is nine ninety six. It's not that long ago. It's still recent memory, right? Nine ninety six. Exactly. And it's not something that we can accept. Oh, it's a different time. I think that's that's making excuses for ourselves. It was a horrible decision to not give this person a uh, jail time, and we were very thankful that uh, on appeal, a higher court decided that cannot just walk away with a fine for such horrific uh, cruelty. So we felt that was an important decision because it set the tone and the message that you will be jailed if you if you commit cruelty to an animal. I think historically, us in the animal welfare, animal protection movement have felt that the penalties have always been very low and some of the sentences meted out are very troubling to us. Um, I've seen a few cases myself where you just don't understand what is going on uh, in the minds of those who are making those decisions. So that's why I think we need society to speak up because nobody can make such decisions. Nobody makes such decisions in a vacuum, right? The, the laws, the court systems, prosecutions, they cannot and they shouldn't make the decision uh, in a vacuum uh, without regard for what society believes, which is why we try to mobilize people and what we want and we need. People always ask me how they can help if they don't have money and everything or they don't have time to volunteer. Just speaking up and lending your voice to the cause is extremely important because if more of us spoke up and said that we absolutely detest animal cruelty, when it does happen, we want severe punishments uh, because we think that that's something that we uh, has to be uh, punished but also be uh, uh, deterred the next person from doing so. I think the more people that do that, the more improvement we'll see in this in this area. 996, 97, social media isn't really a thing yet but now more than ever, actually we do have that kind of power to speak up and let our voice be heard in, in on such matters, right? The ability to transmit a story or to share impassionate like, you know, testament to like what's going on actually can be very effective these days. You are absolutely right. Speak to lawmakers as well. Tell them, you know, if you see a case that you're not happy about, you know, tell them, you know, that something should, something more should be done uh, or the, the law is inadequate or the penalties are too low. 
uh, and hopefully we will see more changes. We have seen many changes already in our history, you know, in the last uh, few decades in terms of the penalties being raised. Uh, and that has come about because uh, I think of very strong public support uh, for raising penalties. Let's talk about some of these penalties, right? So in December 2011, the SPCA submitted a paper reviewing the Animal and Birds Act, posing increased penalties for existing offences based on cruelty and negligence of pet welfare. Uh, these were eventually accepted by the Ministry of National Development, and they were part of a proposal by the Animal Welfare Legislation Review Committee, which the SPCA had played a role in. In 2002, the Agri-Food and Veterinary Authority banned traveling circuses with wild animals from performing in Singapore, citing public safety and animal welfare concerns, an issue, again, which the SPCA had previously lodged appeals to the government against. And in September 2013, a precedent judgment was passed when a pet owner was found guilty and fined $5,000 for subjecting his pet dog to unnecessary suffering by keeping it in his apartment balcony and neglecting his welfare. This constituted a milestone decision as it was made without relying on evidence of physical hurt suffered by the animal, thereby expanding the legal definition of what constitutes abuse towards animal. There are a couple of threads I'm picking up on. First of all, I think when we read about how society develop and how societies evolve, we really look at how we can bring voices to communities or groups that, you know, have never had a voice in our society before. And surprisingly, animals are a big one, right? Because quite frankly, they can't speak, but they form an integral part of our society, especially the pets. And especially in this 2013 case, it was interesting because it also expanded the definition to include what I imagine to be almost like psychological torture. Yeah, and it's like negligence as well, right? Like just the fact that not doing something that can constitute. I think that's equally as important. Basically recognizes the fact that this animal is a living thing that needs welfare beyond just the physical welfare, right? And Which, which sounds so basic if you think about it, but it, it, it's an important part of our history that we need to kind of like recognize as well because it wasn't always the, the case. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things there. You brought the 2011 uh, paper that we submitted. That was a comprehensive review of uh, Singapore's animal protection uh, laws laws and policies that we felt you know, needed to be changed. Uh, we came up with 10 concrete proposals for, for change and you know, some of those were eventually taken on, uh, not all of them. We always need to be looking at the laws and policies. These are not stagnant things that was done in 2011. You, know, you, you probably need to do this every five years. Significant review of everything that we have and see what needs to be changed to adapt to the times. You know, look at the trends and of course see what society wants as well because ultimately society needs to determine some of these things. So some changes did happen after that but the 2013 case that you, you talked about is in a very, very important case. I think a lot of people don't realize the significance of this of this landmark uh, case. And very interestingly, this case also happened before the changes occurred. So in our 2011 paper, we of course brought up this issue of people needing to have a duty of care to animals and it cannot be just about physical health or something that you can prove in a physical form, even mental, uh, psychological suffering matters. But this 2013 case was so important because even before any laws could be changed, this person was already found guilty uh, of animal cruelty. Uh, and it was the first of its kind in Singapore because prior to 2013, there were countless animals that were subjected to mental uh, and psychological suffering. The, the people looking after those animals, they were not brought to, uh, to court. And the common refrain back then was that you cannot prove mental suffering, hence it's not something that can be uh, prosecuted. So an animal needs to be physically hurt before prosecution can be can be done. But that, interestingly, this law of uh, where you cannot cause an animal unnecessary suffering has been in place for decades in Singapore. It is just that finally in 2013, we had a, a court recognize that 
the definition of suffering here can constitute mental suffering. So it's really, really a very significant change that I think went a bit under the radar in terms of how we look after and protect uh, uh, animals. So ever since then, you can go to somebody and say there has already been a case where someone was prosecuted for causing an animal mental suffering and you know you need to change what you're doing now before you get prosecuted as well. So it was a very important case and you're right, there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes for, for, for that case. The case was a border collie uh, dog being kept in a very small balcony in a, in a condominium and it was being kept in there in the balcony for the majority of the day. The guardian of the animal, I think, used to work very long hours and was used to be out of the home for most of the day. And the dog is just sitting in the balcony, rain, sun, everything. The dog was, uh, you know, used to bark in distress. Uh, and it was very clear from anybody who knew anything basic about animal welfare, animal health, that animal was suffering. So I'm, I'm guessing this was like reported from like a neighbor or something. Yes, absolutely. It was because thankfully again, so see, there's a lot of cruelty that goes on behind closed doors that we cannot see and are the, are the most challenging ones to, to work on. This one was, was plainly visible for anybody. And you know, it's, you know, in condominiums, in, in balconies, uh, it's very, visible to neighbors uh, and we had very supportive community there who, who stepped up to provide evidence uh, that was required to prosecute that guardian in this case. I'm glad our sensitivities have evolved. This is a good time to, to recognize that yeah, society is, is growing alongside. There must be a legal team right behind the SPCA or is this something which you, you need volunteers for as well? When we don't write the policies because that's the, the work of the, the policy makers and the, and the government but we propose changes. We do our research, we tend to look at uh, what is happening around the world. We don't have to reinvent everything here. Uh, there are certain things, of course, we need to tweak and fine-tune for our local context, but we can look at what's happening uh, elsewhere. We know the issues very well in Singapore because we are intric intricately involved uh, with them. Uh, and then we propose, uh, we write papers and propose uh, changes or write appeals and propose changes. So absolutely, uh, like the 2011 very comprehensive review that we did, I came up with the 10 concrete proposals of change that we definitely had a team of uh, volunteers uh, behind that. We definitely had a, a couple of lawyers involved, we even had law students uh, involved uh, in, that, in that project. So yeah, we always step on volunteers and people with uh, expertise in the areas wherever possible. That is fascinating. I, I'm, I'm glad to see, man. It's a very robust system and the good thing about volunteers is that you get people from all different walks of life, I, I suppose, who come in and uh, provide their expertise. I was looking at some of the campaigns that actually the SPCA was running, uh, and one in particular, as we talk about adoption versus you know purchasing, uh, in mid-May to mid-June of 2009, uh, the SPCA actually launched a series of adoption ads at bus shelters and on Zoe cards. I don't even remember what Zoe cards are these days, but I had to go and do my research on them. <laughs> uh, the objective was to promote the adoption of dogs while emphasizing their companionable nature. Uh, the ads also appeared on you know on popular magazines like Eight Days, IS Magazines, Today, New Paper, Sunday Times. Um, the SPCA actually also worked with Asachi and Sachi Singapore for creating the ads pro bono and Alan Miles for the photography, which was also in Australia. Um, the advertisement shared top prize with Singtel for best ads in May in today's newspaper and the campaign also won two silver awards at the SPH Inc. Awards held in August uh, that same year. This is kind of like just to raise the awareness of, of adoption, but I wanted to kind of you know zoom out a little bit more and, and talk about uh, adoption in general uh, and you know what the landscape is like. 
uh, first and foremost, maybe you could clarify first, what do you think is the significant difference between purchasing and adoption? So, of course, we very strongly advocate for adoption over purchasing. Um, you know, and our belief in that regard is, is, is because we have a pet overpopulation, meaning there are more pets out there than there are homes available for. That's why you have homeless animals. That's why you have shelters with animals. So, for us, of course, when you adopt an animal, you are not just giving that rescued animal a second chance. Some of these animals may have been abused, some of them may have been abandoned by their human caregivers, some of them may be street animals, varied uh, backgrounds. So number one is you are giving a second chance to the animal for uh, uh, you know, a chance to have a loving home and hopefully a forever home. Uh, but the second thing you're doing also, of course, is you are then freeing up space for the animal welfare organization or the animal rescue organization to go and rescue another animal because again, there's always going to be animals needing shelter. Shelters obviously are not spaces that you want to keep an animal for life. They're supposed to be short term. The, the welfare is obviously never going to be as good as what you would get in a home setting. So the aim is always to get these animals into, into homes. And the way you can do that, I mean, the way you can then rescue another animal is to get the ones that you have adopted. So you're actually having a very uh, significant impact on that one animal, but also the next animal that can come in. For us, that's a very important part of adoption. And of course, there's a flip side also with purchasing where, number one, you have, you know, uh, okay, you have not given the animal in a shelter uh, a chance, but also you may be supporting a trade that is uh, has questionable ethics uh, and has a lot of uh, animal welfare and sometimes animal cruelty going on behind it uh, as well. The whole pet industry and the way animals are bred for sale is something that needs, you know, continual and serious uh, uh, look at to prove what is what is going on. There have been changes over the years, yes, there have been some improvements made, but, you know, there's still many problems uh, remaining. We won't go into the full details here, but, you know, just to maybe very briefly touch on it and give one, one specific example, um, you know, let's talk about uh, pedigree dogs. That's a very simple category to understand. A lot of people, you know, have kept or know of, you know, uh, how pedigree dogs are. And you realize that many different breeds, shapes, sizes, etc., colors. And the, one of the biggest problems in the breeding industry, there are many problems, so I'm just picking one, is, is how animals are selected to be bred for aesthetics, for physical appearance, rather than health and temperament. Health and temperament of the animal is what determines the animal's welfare and the quality of life subsequently, right? Those are the most important things if you had to breed. We are saying, of course, adopt or buy, uh, support shelters and uh, rescue organizations. But let's say if you were going to breed and you were going to buy, then of course what we say is, is don't select animals based on aesthetics and physical appearance and, and compromise on their, on their health and temperaments. Uh, and that's something that's very common in the breeding industry. So if you look at a, a category of dogs uh, called brachycephalic dogs, which are basically flat-faced dogs, uh, like pugs, French bulldogs, shizus. Uh, those those dogs, they are actually having significant anatomical uh, changes to what uh, sort of more normal dog ancestor uh, uh, came from. The, they are they are so distorted in their physical uh, shape that they have multiple health problems. And there can be significant health problems that affects their, their welfare and quality of life. You know, there's something like, you know, respiratory disorders, uh, breathing disorders, you know, it's like three times more in brachycephalic dogs. They are much more prone to getting cornea uh, ulcers. They are more likely to get heat strokes. They are likely, more likely to get uh, a skin, certain skin conditions, dry eyes, even anal sac disorders. Um, it's, it's incredible that we still breed these dogs uh, the way we do. They are 
struggling to breathe almost their entire lives for some of them, depending on how bad their, their confirmation is. Uh, and that's something that we have all accepted for years and uh, that's just normal part of uh, keeping these animals. So they're basically born into sort of like a health risk already is, is what you're saying. Absolutely. The option to purchase is there, but when we purchase from, let's say, a shop that uh, doesn't take what you just said into consideration, we're actually creating a demand and there's like a vicious cycle that keeps on going where these shops feel like they need to provide more. Hence, you know, the breeding continues in that, in that cyclical space. And then, yeah, you know, generations down the line, it becomes a mainstay issue that's hard to call because an industry is built out of it. Um, I, I see that as, as slightly problematic, but thank you for shedding light on it. I, I honestly wouldn't have known how deep the rabbit hole went. In terms of, let's say, adopting... Um, uh, an animal from a shelter is is it a very costly experience no actually the exact opposite i mean it's much much more costly to purchase uh, than to adopt i mean at the moment it's almost like a you know quote unquote covid tax on on puppies you know the the price has gone up approximately by 3 to 5000 per puppy puppies these days might be going for anywhere between 5 to 15000 dollars you would never see such a uh, a cost in a shelter environment uh, of course each organization and group uh, runs their adoptions differently but I've never seen anything more than a couple hundred, a few hundred dollars. And that money is just to cover basic costs. Actually, doesn't even cover the full cost. At our, at SPC, for example, the adoption fee doesn't cover everything we put into the animal, uh, because the animals go back with a whole host of, uh, good things. You know, they are, they would have been microchipped, uh, vaccinated, uh, treated by a vet if they have had any, uh, medical issues. Sometimes you go back with some medication and the animal still requires ongoing care. Uh, the animal will be sterilized, so they can't, continue to reproduce, they would have been de-ticked, dewormed, etc. So uh, some of them would even be, a, be trained depending on how long they have lived in the shelter or the rescue environment. You obviously like at SPC, I know other groups do the same. They start off a training process for the animal, get them used to a collar leash for a dog, for example, uh, get them to do some basics like sit. And you know, so you, you there's so many benefits to, uh, to, to adopting. Personal anecdote of mine was, and I was much younger when this happened, I was probably like maybe 10, 10 years old, um, but there was a husky that we adopted from the SPCA at Mount Vernon and it was very they were very thorough about this I mean a husky is a very is a very big responsibility right um, so they actually asked us and they had to see our house compound in order to understand whether it would be a conducive environment uh, for the husky to, to, to live in or to make it a home now thinking about it even though I was much younger I didn't really understand it back then but even looking out uh, for whether or not the adoption is a good fit for the owner and for the pet itself, was is, is like sort of like a key driving force for the SPCA. Because there's, there's no money from, from rescue and adoption, right? We, we put money into it. We don't get a, a, a profits out of this. So obviously, we're doing it because of the of the care and concern for the animals involved. So what you get with the adoption process, and this is the same, many other groups as well have that same care and concern, is what you also get is that support which you, you may not get from other avenues. Meaning once you've taken an animal home, it's not like, okay, you know, wash hands, our job is done, we don't care about what happens afterwards. You know, we have many adopters who after the animal has gone home, you know, two days later, three days later, one week, one month, sometimes six months later, contact us and, you know, they have a question or concern or something may not be going perfectly well. They look for advice and support and you will always get that from a, uh, you know, an animal welfare organization. I can definitely see, you know, the amount of heart that goes behind uh, the work you all do at the SPC. So uh, thank you very much for your service, honestly. I think it's, it's one of those very moving episodes for us here at SG Explained. We've had a good streak of like very encouraging episodes so far. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. This season has been a very hopeful one, uh, Rovik. I appreciate the, 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 the kind words and support. Uh, guys, I, I must say that there is a huge team at SPCA uh, and a wider uh, SPCA family. You know, we've got amazing staff uh, on the ground 
ground who are doing incredible work and sacrificing so much for the animals. I talked about the volunteers before, very dedicated people who, who give so much and you know take almost nothing in return. Uh, amazing donors and supporters, uh, and uh, you know like just a whole community of people who support our work. You know, so it's it's really it's really thanks to all of them for what they have done. Those who have done it before and those who are involved at the moment. Yeah, and if people want to join that community, learn more about the SPC and its activities, where can they go? So the simplest starting point is just our website uh, and our social media accounts, you know, you know spca.org.sg, very easy to find us. From there you find everything else and there are links and you follow us on social media and you will, you know, you will find out latest updates on events and happenings and issues uh, where we need a spot. And, you know, if, if you hear this before the 31st of July, uh, we're having our Youth Animal Welfare Symposium. It's a huge uh, event, amazing speakers, uh, and we're talking about a whole range of animal welfare issues from companion animal welfare issues, issues to do with wildlife and animals in entertainment, animals in the farm industry, animals in uh, use for testing. Um, it's going to be uh, incredible. A uh, full day of uh, amazing talks and uh, discussions. Whenever we do episodes like this, I'm reminded about how diverse Singapore is and how the fact that you know communities like Dr. Jaipal's and the SPCA, like they serve a very important purpose in Singapore to to remind us that communities that need voices, causes that need you know people to fight for them, the fact that they exist and that people can play that role uh, is an important part of any society. And knowing that there are people out there fighting this cause reminds me of, of how grateful I am that we have such a diverse community. Absolutely agree. You know, in fact, I think one of the most impressive things is how the continued groundswell for an organization such as this, or even like the uh, the efforts that go into prevention uh, of cruelty towards animals in, in general, and animal welfare, uh, fighting against animal abuse, that to me uh, shows something very fundamental about uh, about this show that we've we've tried to explore over and over again which is the heart of, of Singaporeans but as we uncover these stories I'm always very hearted and hopeful um, that we as a society are progressing and, and learning how to be just like better that brings us to the end of this episode we are going to be taking a one week break just to pause and, and be able to take a breather but we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode lots of exciting stuff left in this season we are only one third of our way there but Elliot you know I hope that uh, you have a good break and Dr. Jaipa once again thank you for coming on the show thanks guys we 